This episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Since 2009, Shares Post has been a leader in the secondary market for private company shares. With its network of 44,000 accredited investors and 150,000 members, Shares Post has transacted in more than 190 different private companies. Whether you're an investor or a shareholder looking for liquidity, Shares Post has a solution for you. Visit SharesPost.com. From Amazon Whole Foods to Cisco App Dynamics, 2017 had some juicy tech acquisitions. So what's in store for 2018? We've got one of tech's top M&A lawyers. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof. My colleague, Matthew Lindley, is off today. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm is here. Hello. And our special guest today is Jamie Lai, who co-chairs Cooley's M&A practice. Thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. So last year was an interesting year for M&A. We've actually talked about a lot of your deals on the show, though you can't talk about those in particular. But uh, one one of my favorite ones to talk about was Amazon buying Whole Foods. And yes. Amazon is your client. But... Uh, but you know, just it's just curious because we're seeing a lot of these companies that aren't really tech companies, or we didn't think of as tech companies. I mean, Whole Foods is not a tech company, but Amazon is, and we're seeing them joining forces. Usually, it's the other way around, though. Usually, we're seeing like non-traditional acquirers, quote unquote, uh, buying companies like PetSmart and Chewy.com. But yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Like, what even is a tech company anymore? And do do M and I mean, do do buyers care? I, I don't know about that, but I do know that tech companies, as, as a rule, will demand a much higher revenue multiple than non-tech companies because there's an implication of growth. And so I think whether or not you're a tech company really does come into play in regards to what you're worth. And on the non-deal side, we've seen that happen in the case of Blue Apron, which was effectively repriced to a non-tech multiple after going public. Whoops. But in the case of Amazon Whole Foods... <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. I, I try to be gentle. It's the new year. It's a new me. Uh, <laughs> politeness and decorum are my two buzzwords. Um, but going back to the Amazon Whole Foods deal, this was, to your point cross vertical it wasn't just a tech to tech deal and uh do we think we're seeing more and more of those and is that a temporary trend or something that we're going to see less of in 2018 so my prediction is we will see more of it in 2018 we really saw um both buyers and sellers think about themselves in different ways in terms of how they package themselves always good to package yourself at that higher multiple rate category um but buyers also really looking at what is next generation. And this idea of sort of industry verticals, I think, is really compressing. So we're seeing not just Amazon Whole Foods, which of course takes up a lot of um, headline airtime, but brick and mortar thinking hard about delivery and services and goods and customer experience and how that will work um, across geographies long term for purposes of of what the consumer experience is. So you're seeing um, shipped, sell to target. You're seeing plated. And you did that deal. I did that deal. Plated to Albertsons also. You did that one too. Also on the Cooley roster. Um, meet up to WeWork. That's another one. Um, William Sonoma bought a company called Outward this year. So lots so of different So basically you did a of... lot of the deals we talked about on our podcast. So thanks you. Thank you what, for coming in and telling what was us the, more. What was the Outward deal? What was that one? I missed um, that. That's visualization technology. Oh, so okay. if you want to buy something and see how it looks in a specific location, you can... For example, furniture. For example. Don't you want to see how that new sofa I, looks? Well, my apartment wouldn't fit. But other than that, yeah. So we're seeing a lot more of this. And you expect more of it in 2018. Is there a particular particular sector of non-tech that could end up being bought by tech or non-tech companies that could buy tech companies. So who's going to be the most active next year, I guess, in that area? So I see a lot of the big box 
um, on the retail side, looking at innovation and looking at consumer experience um, for all the deals that we do announce. Of course, there are, um, particularly in 2017, at least in my experience, five or six deals that we didn't announce because they never got done. Um, and particularly in these areas where you have both very interesting capital markets movement happening at the same time as M&A movement happening, I think we tend to sort of um, get ahead of ourselves. So Blue Apron, everybody thought that industry maybe needed to be revalued literally in terms of its productivity and long-term scalability. But in actuality, when we see things like plated or shipped um, or Whole Foods, we what we realize is there's a lot more deal-making um, going on behind the scenes. Um, the entrance of private equity in tech, of course, is changing the landscape. So my view is that the these sort of hard and fast industry verticals are, are getting blended a little bit. People are thinking um, more creatively about what it means to bolt on acquisition. Probably automotive too, because there's a lot of development in, in self-driving car technology and other and other technology. I mean, they say that a lot of the automakers didn't innovate as much for a while, and so they're looking to buy other other companies to innovate. Are you seeing that too? For sure, um, mostly um, AI-related, um, autonomous driving, autonomous transportation, just generally. Obviously, um, I can't wait to buy the new Tesla pickup truck, but. Um, <laughs> Once but, the Model 3 gets done starting to be produced, then they can talk about that. But yeah, until then, yeah. I'm putting Elon in the no product zone. Okay. okay. No new product zone, sorry. Uh, but I do believe that what we're seeing um, it is a real interest in larger companies that may not just be buying for innovation, but be buying to get ahead of competition. So there's an interest in some of these convergence zones and in, in being the first mover or being an interesting mover. And I think some of our more um, brick and mortar or historical companies are no longer afraid to have little innovation sectors that they buy rather than just develop internally. And you mentioned something about a lot of deals getting close to getting done and not actually getting done. I mean, what, what happened there exactly? 2017 was really choppy, particularly for those of us who play hard on the tech side. It was an incredibly stop-start year. I think I had seven or eight deals die in Q1 and Q2 alone um, that I that I think you if they were— spent a million hours on, and that, I'm sure that's, that's very lovely. frustrating. Yes, Do you still get the money, though? Sometimes <laughs> sort of. we get sort some of. of the money. Yeah. For the deals you don't get to keep the money, do you want to go ahead and tell us the details of those transactions now? <laughs> or at least on background well, after— well, well, recording. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th I think that there was a lot of uncertainty in the market, both with respect to valuations. Um, what would happen to the capital markets generally always, of course, impacts how our VC-backed companies in particular are viewing their own trajectories. Um, there was regulatory changes in the market. There was a lot of uncertainty around tax code changes. And, and, and again, in addition to that, there's a lot of consolidation going on in competitive sectors. We have long-term public or private companies, rather, that have played the long game as opposed to um, selling early or going out into the public markets. A lot of private companies are willing to play private longer. So you have a number of different factors going on in the market all at the same time, which I find really interesting as a deal lawyer. But what it ended up resulting in, in 2017, at least from my perspective, is a lot of deals um, that didn't get done because the market was simply choppy. And it wasn't just overvaluation. So a couple of years ago, what we saw with a lot of deals not happening 
done was just a huge mismatch of expectations between uh, the price at which a VC wanted to sell effectively and the price a buyer was willing to pay. I don't think it's all about valuation in 2017. I think it's a, a mix of factors, but my view is in 2018, people are a little more confident and a little bit ready to be bolder, more innovative, be a first mover, take out a little competition. I didn't say that from a regulatory perspective, but that's <laughs> obviously what people do. So, right. how, so the number of deals that didn't get done last year, was that abnormally high compared to historical norms of the current cycle in tech? So I can only talk about you know my um, feeling on the street, because we obviously don't report deals that don't get done. Of course. Um, but my perspective, sitting in a um, pretty heavy M&A shop and talking to my peers, is that there were more deals in 2017 than normal that did not get done, and that we're all expecting in 2018 to sort of come in hot to Q1, Q2. So the deals that didn't get done, the same deals might come back alive. I'm, I have two on my plate right now. And so in part of it, you mentioned earlier, there was some regulatory uncertainty. Now there's more certainty. I mean, we, we have a tax bill, whatever you want to call it, whatever just passed. Uh, how is that going to impact M&A? My view is that that people are simply going to be more confident in the tax outcome generally, and that just makes people feel a little bit more comfortable understanding how to do valuations. Um, and I believe strongly that um, the deal markets have momentum, and so the more deals that continue to get done, the more deals people are comfortable doing. What about antitrust? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about like AT&T, Time Warner, and all that, and whether or not this administration is getting involved. Uh, are there any different antitrust concerns than normal, given this administration? So I don't view it as administrative-centric, actually, or administration-centric. I, I really view it to go back to our earlier theme about convergence. So we're starting to really change the way that the, the commerce stream works. And so I think there are new and different questions being asked of our regulators, whether or not that um, has a specific outcome with this administration versus a historical one. I think we're really going to have to wait and see. We have an administration very keenly focused on on um, non-U.S. interactions, and so what that means for U.S.-based competition is, I think, a little bit, um, a little bit tea leaf reading, like at the moment. Yeah, actually, that's really an interesting point because cross-border M&A—that's always a huge portion of, of deals. And there's been some really strong rhetoric about about China and some other countries out there. Has that impacted deals? So I would I would have two themes um, there to touch on. One is non-U.S. capital markets transactions are on the rise. We are doing more Asia-based IPOs than ever, which is really interesting. Um, of course, that goes hand in hand with how um, the how the world views non-U.S. M&A too, right? To see credible, um, consistent capital markets activity also impacts uh, views of companies when it comes to M&A exits. And so my my view is that people are going back to more collaborative deal making cross border. We've seen a lot of deal making in Israel in 2017. Um, I enjoyed working on Uber's Yandex transaction, which, of course, was a joint venture, not a 
straight acquisition. I think people are starting to do more innovative um, collaboration type deal work cross border. Um, of course, we've seen that for years in the life sciences industry, and now tech, I think, has gotten on board um, that it's not simply just buy or bust. Well, on the Israel front, <clears throat> the Intel Mobile ideal was a U.S. Israeli deal. So it was not just cross border, but cross ocean, and it was $15.3 billion in the autonomous sector, hitting essentially all the trends we've talked about at once, aside from going outside of the tech industry. Does that scale of a deal uh, shake the nest loose? I'm trying to figure out an analogy here. As in, could this deal drive more like it in the U.S.-Israel space, or do people not really look to one specific deal to set the tone for what might come? Yeah, and there was also Google Ways a, a few years back. That was uh, $1.1 billion, Yeah, I think? so there's a lot. Yeah, but still, this, this quite was very large, big. Though. Yeah, yeah, there have been a few other big deals, but this was a <laughs> very big deal. It was bigger than the, the Amazon Whole Foods deal. I mean, like, just keep that in mind. That was $13.7 billion. It's also interesting because most of Israel's tech scene is, or much of it, is, is cybersecurity. Uh, um, one thing that they say in Israel is that people are often selling their companies too early. They feel the VCs in Israel feel like uh, Israeli companies that could have sold for billions are selling for hundred million, and they're they're kind of upset about that. But but yeah, that that's definitely an interesting space because it's a very hot tech scene in Israel for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, China. What about like South America? Well, we had that IPO, right? We had the Despagar. Yeah, uh, IPO. and then in NetShoes. Was, is NetShoes the one that did list in the United States? Yes, I forget and where were, it was. Yeah, it was in the like NICE? In okay. The, yeah, they were Brazilian e-commerce We actually company. had a number of, going back to your point about China, a number of IPOs from China uh, on U.S. exchanges this year. For example, Sogu, um, which is actually down a little bit. Sogo, from I think. <clears throat> I do apologize, Sogo. I'm not a Chinese speaker, but that was what I was told. We're going to go with Katie on this one. It's actually off about 8.5% from its IPO price, but it was quite a large deal. And if I recall correctly, it was profitable at the time of its IPO, which was super cool. Um, I'm kind of curious if we're going to see more they're, of that. They're competitor of Baidu. Yes. I think a smaller competitor to Baidu. Um, but the trend that I thought was the most interesting in uh, 2017 on the on the uh, kind of deal side was the AppDynamics deal, which kicked off the year with a multi-billion dollar transaction and also took an IPO off the line. Like the 11th hour. Like, I actually was supposed to talk to the CEO on the day of their IPO, and then I find out that it gets canceled at the last minute because they did this this big deal. That was really interesting. I mean, I know that dual track is a thing. All the, I hear all these companies... And, and actually, that wasn't even exactly what happened in this scenario. But I hear so many companies that are lining up for an IPO are also entertaining M&A talks, which probably makes your job a little complicated trying to figure out which way they're going to go. But um, do you think we're going to see more of that? Maybe not like the very, very last week. But do you think we're going to see more of these companies that have been taking all the steps towards an IPO and be like, oops, never mind? It's always an interesting playbook, and my partners on the capital market side routinely uh, blame me for stealing work <laughs> right out from under their noses. Um, I remind them I'm a lawyer, not a banker. But um, <laughs> but it, I, I don't see this as being – AppD is such a strong, um, highly publicized example, um, and I don't see the dual track – strategy really changing it's a like i said earlier it's so easy now for vcs to have lots of examples of how playing the long game works and it's always a leverage point right let's go push on the market particularly if you have a competitive product or and you're in a very very competitive space where once every dollar you make in revenue is taking it off a particular competitor's um, bench. So, so more of a zero-sum market, essentially. Totally. Okay. So the 
the strategy of a dual track process has always been um, in the VC toolkit, so to speak. My personal view is we have sort of two groups of companies going out, companies that have stayed long on the private side for a really long time, and they're very big and very formidable, and they are not going to get taken out at the 11th hour. Um, like not Airbnb and Uber not getting acquired, you're telling me? I mean, I'm going no, I mean, to not guessing. go to Vegas on that one. Um, and that's as close to a yes you will hear from an, <laughs> there you go. an M&A lawyer. Not going to Vegas from a very risk-averse person. Um but we do have we do have a zone from an investment perspective of companies that have been around in very interesting markets that do have pretty viable IPO paths and I and I also believe that there is a real willingness on the part of particularly the stronger VC backed companies to really toggle that um, that alternative path from a realistic perspective, not just on the eve of do we go public or sell, but to think about that dual track really early on in their process, actually. What about companies that already are public? Are we going to see some of these struggling tech companies? There have been a few that have gone public. Are, are they going to get bought? I my personal view is we've been um, we've been in a choppy IPO market for purposes of the last I and this is of course the M and A lawyers bent. This is not um, I'm not speaking on behalf of my capital markets partners, but the market has been relatively choppy over the past four or five years. So you are seeing some companies who just have hit the whipsaw um, from either a liquidity perspective uh, or a profitability perspective or a revenue perspective. And and thank goodness. Goodness for those of us who do M and A, we we are going to see more consolidation in the market this year. So maybe Blue Apron. I mean, <laughs> if if the uh, Albertsons deal is a good example, but on the enterprise <clears throat> IPO point, we saw the App Dynamics acquisition happen at the eleventh hour, and then we still saw a number of relatively strong H one or first half of the year uh, IPOs like Okta, Alteryx, Cloudera, MuleSoft, and they've all done decently well and better since then, and so they didn't actually follow the App Dynamics. Um, exit. So I'm kind of curious if people were expecting longer returns down the road, so investors were more focused on IPOs, hold their shares as opposed to getting liquidity, uh, final liquidity now. Um, because you would think if the market was that hot for app dynamics, other companies might have tried to pursue and then succeed in selling instead of going public, but it didn't seem to be the case. I think there are so many different factors now in the market that um, we, it's so hard to generalize by industry. What we do know now, though, is that um, both, all players in the market, management, uh, investors, uh, whether they're pre- or post-IPO investors, are just much more sophisticated in terms of identifying talent, identifying hot product, identifying a long-term competitive play. And so I don't think it's any coincidence that we're getting better at deciding when the right time to take a company out on the tech side is. So one thing that you've told me that's really interesting is that you have some really big deals, maybe billion dollars, you couldn't tell me which ones, that were secrets, that that some tech companies, especially with private transactions, they, they don't have to disclose how large a transaction was or even that it happened. And then with public transactions, they don't have to disclose the disclose the price unless it's considered material. And for a very large company like Apple, I mean, material can be a lot of money. So, I mean, what's happening with these these secret deals? What kind of deals are they? The super secret deal world. 
Um, I made a school under the radar acquisitions. Yeah. I mean, the, the employees have to know, right? They have to know they have like a new company that's on their paycheck, right? Super secret deal world is no good for lawyers either. There was one year where I appeared, if you looked on my bio, to have done absolutely nothing in that particular tra- <laughs> transaction year. Um, no, I think you can't it's, brag. It's, I mean, we, you could leak it to reporters. I, yeah, that would be a career-ending move. Um, not for you, but. For you. <laughs> There's only so many podcasts. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a super cool area to talk about just in terms of how we view the deal market because a lot of us in deal world are very conditioned to just think about public deals, publicly disclosed deals, large deals, things with billion-dollar deal um, price tags on them. There are, I would say there are two trends that are a, a little bit hard, and this is the fun part of your job to suss out. You have lots of small deals that are happening in one particular area or with one type of a management team or you have these very large deals that are moving the market, but they're just not disclosed. So you have very large stage private companies who are able to effectively use their equity as consideration um, or use cash on the books as consideration, and those deals are never disclosed. And and you may have a, a management team uh, that goes in-house effectively at these larger companies that are the only people who know the particulars of the deal, and they're very well incented to not leak. Um, so it's not the case that while a company employee rank and file may know that they've just been sold to a company, there just really aren't a lot of details out there in the public to be um, uncovered. So there's a lot of these these employees. Maybe some of these companies may be small. They might just have a large price tag. Maybe That's they have exactly like 25 right. employees that built some innovative technology and or IP or something that someone acquires and they they you know make a lot of money individually but it's not enough to really catch for reporters to catch wind of it. Yeah, that's right. And there are also other um, mechanisms for valuation uh, employee retention. Uh, is one, and also earnout value is another. So you may see deals that have very, very high stakes for both the acquirer and the target, um, but they they may not actually be realized at the time the deal is done. There may be contingent consideration or high stakes equity involved. What do they say? Like, don't update your LinkedIn and say the new company you work for. Like, I mean, I'm just kind of curious it, it, people, how this goes so under the radar. I mean, it must be incentives or threats. I mean, which is kind of the same idea in a way. <laughs> yeah, and. You know, I also believe that there's a if if some group of people is working on something very innovative and very competitively sensitive, everyone's rowing in the same boat, so to speak. Yeah, but the opposite of this would be, I think, the GM Cruise deal, which was like what 1.6 billion last March? No, sorry, two Marches ago. Now it's 2018, um, and that was a small number of employees. But they trumpeted that one. It seemed like they wanted to say that they were doing that, and so I think some deals have a bit more of a strategic. Absolutely. Uh, branding perspective. So the opposite of what you're saying. Not only do they not want to keep it quiet, they would like you to know about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and part of that is really a generator of, of galvanizing talent. When you have an entrepreneurial team that goes into sort of a non-traditional buyer, as we were describing earlier, and you really want to galvanize additional people to come join something new and interesting. I, I, one of the trends I think that's super interesting is you are no longer seeing entrepreneurs who just solidly say no to going to to work on a bigger platform. I think larger company acquirers have figured out ways to champion bringing entrepreneurial vision and entrepreneurial freedom in-house. And so it is no like longer- Like if you don't want to go to Google because you feel like you sold out. 
or like IBM or Oracle. <laughs> I mean, we can just go down the ladder like, here so of hell. Yeah, yeah, some of the What's worse than Oracle? Companies, I'm curious. Okay, anyways, keep going. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a lot of big buyers understand that, right? And so what they're offering employees uh, um, in the management teams is the opportunity to come be autonomous within a larger umbrella and still save a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit and autonomy um, being innovators within a larger umbrella. My, my personal view is we're going to see a lot more of that over time with um, with our sort of big uh, private equity shops looking more um, regularly at keeping entrepreneurial-like management teams in place. That, of course, forces them to change a little bit of the way that they incent and do comp on a go-forward basis. But we have a lot of PE shops looking at tech in a very new way. Um, and so that all of those forces sort of playing at once in the same place allows us to look more freshly at what it means to be an entrepreneur. And so if a company's public, though, they do have to disclose if it's considered material. But let's say a company like Apple, which at the time of this recording has $884 billion in market cap. What could they get away with without disclosing? Like, I mean, could they acquire a multi-billion dollar company and, and not mention that it was multi-billion? Yeah, it's a facts and circumstances test. I have a lot of public companies that, um, for competitive reasons, are not interested in shouting from the rooftops about their latest transaction. And if it's not a material transaction with respect to either the consideration paid because it was cash, there's, you know, sort of no debt financing, there's no stock being issued outside of employee compensation arrangements, there's really no requirement to disclose. This came up, actually, I was covering Microsoft for a while, and um, I was thinking about their Yammer acquisition, which was like $1.1 billion, like a 1,000 years ago, and they didn't seem to do much inside of the company, so I was curious, if did they write that off? And I was trying to figure this out, and someone said, dude, that's not going to show up. Like, don't, you're looking for something that's not going to be there in any of these public reports because it's not big enough, and I felt really silly for a while. Learned that one the hard way. <laughs> it's sad um, when a billion dollars doesn't count as a lot of money. You know, when I look at my checking account, I think the exact same thing. I think a billion here, a billion there. What? is change anyways. Um, but before yeah. before we do depart, I wanted to pull up some numbers just uh, to set the stage for what 2017 looked like from a U.S. perspective, so not a tech-only perspective. So according to Reuters, Thomson Reuters and Axios this morning, the total deal value of M&A in the U.S. from 2016 to 2017 went down by about $300 billion from $1.7 trillion to $1.4 trillion. But the deal volume went up from about 11,500 transactions in 16 to about 13,000 flat in 2017. So a bit of a set of plus and minus there for the overall M&A market in the U.S., but I mean, now that we have an idea of what you think for next year, perhaps we'll see both those numbers go up. I'm bullish on both of those numbers. You can come check, you can come check me again in 2019. Uh, actually, we probably will, so we'll see you in the first couple of weeks of that year. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Come back next week. All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday.